Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you and praise you for this glorious day that you've given us, which is slowly turning into a beautiful evening. And now, Father, may your Spirit inspire the reading and preaching of your Word, and may your Spirit open the hearts and minds of those who are present, so that they too will be transformed by your truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. And so, as I said, I'm just going to be reading to you tonight from Romans 4, uh, verses 9 through 12. Listen to the Word of God. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. It's been said that most people are religious in the sense that they feel it is important to keep some religious ordinances, rituals, and rules. Now, that may not be as true as it used to be. Um, The population of people in this country who don't identify with any particular religion has gone up a lot in the last several years, last couple of decades. And I'd say the trend is more advanced in other parts of the world, in Western Europe, for example. But nonetheless, if we look at our own context here in the United States, I think most people a majority would still identify as religious. And when they do that, though, they may really be identifying as religionists. And I want to explain that briefly. There is a good side and a bad side to being a religionist. Um, It's good in the sense that rituals cause a person to think about some higher being. That's very true. Certain prayers, the celebration of the sacraments... There's the sort of things that people do in the church, or for that matter, the synagogue or the mosque, remind a person of why they're there. They don't just sit there silently. They go through various rituals. So that's good. But it's bad in this sense. It's bad because the rituals may be thought of as the means by which a person becomes acceptable to God. In other words, the rituals are something that you do in order to be accepted by God. The rituals are the the price of admittance, the gate of entrance, whichever description you might want to borrow. Now, the present passage, these few verses that I just read, however, are very clear. Ritual is the wrong way for a man to seek acceptance and justification with God. 
Now, the first thing we should ask ourselves when considering these verses is, who receives the blessing of forgiveness? The word blessedness or blessing refers back to the blessed man. And I discussed who was the blessed man two weeks ago. That was um, Romans 4, 6 to 8. And just to review, the blessed man is the man who is justified by faith. And that means he is counted righteous without works. His sins are forgiven and covered and his sins are not counted against him. And that last element is especially meaningful, I think, to have our sins not counted against us, because we spend our whole lives manufacturing sins, don't we? I mean, if I could make money as easily as I make sin, you know, I'd never have to work again after today. <laughs> it would be the easiest thing in the world. I'd have piles and piles and piles of money going all the way up to the mountains. Well, I don't, uh, but I do have sins that go all the way up to the mountains, and confidentially, so do you. But they're not counted against us. That's what it means to be righteous. That's what it means to be blessed in the eyes of God. And so such a person is greatly blessed, blessed indeed beyond imagination. But here is a critical question, or a series of questions. Something that Abraham had to confront and something that Paul is talking about right now. Is the blessing of forgiveness intended okay, for the circumcised only or for the uncircumcised also? Is it intended for the Jew only or the non-Jew, the Gentile also? Is it intended for the religious only? Or the non-religious also? Is it intended, is forgiveness intended for the baptized only? Or the non-baptized also? Is it intended for the saved only? Or the unsaved also? For the church member only? Or for the unchurched also? And for the interested only? Or for the disinterested also. And if, if we look at it in the general perspective, we might ask, is the blessing of forgiveness being justified by faith alone for only a few people? Or is it something that is available, something that is there for people from every nation? In other words, just some people in one nation or people from every nation all over the world. Now Abraham, getting back to Father Abraham, Abraham was reckoned righteous. Why? Because he believed. And he was reckoned righteous when he believed. His faith served as his credit for righteousness. The word credited... Elogiste means to count, to reckon, to deposit, to put in one's account, to impute. Abraham's faith was counted for righteousness or credited as righteousness. Now, we have to remember that Abraham was justified or counted righteousness on account of faith. 
He was not justified by any of these things. He was not justified by being religious. He was not justified by performing good deeds or doing some particular good work. He was not justified by being good or virtuous. He was not justified by submitting to any ritual. He was not justified by joining some body of believers. And of course, let me say, be the first to say that these are all good things. But they are not what justify. They did not justify Abraham, and they cannot justify us. The Apostle Paul, who spent such a great deal of time pondering this issue and praying about this issue, said in Galatians, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that also applies to anyone who comes to faith in God for us through Jesus Christ. Paul writes in um, Titus chapter 3, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so again, we get a sense of the radical nature of the gospel. You can have two people standing side by side, and one of them is an upstanding community pillar, honest at his job, good with his family, someone everybody looks up to, someone who contributes positively to the lives of those around him. You have that man. And then you have the man next to him, the person next to him, who may never have had a steady job, who may be addicted to meth, who's never been responsible for his decisions in life, who has never seemed to contribute to the community or led what anyone would consider a worthy life. Both of them stand equally before the throne of grace. And the man who has done all the good things in his life is no more justified before God than the man who has not done anything worthwhile in his life. The key is to have faith. Justification. By grace through faith alone. And now let's consider briefly the, the, the importance of the ritual. Abraham submitted to the ritual of circumcision. We know that. But he was counted righteous before the ritual of circumcision was instituted. And that is a very clear point, a very important point. Abraham made his decision to follow God at least 14 years before he was circumcised. God asked him to follow him, and he did. And it was only later that God put forth a requirement to be circumcised. And the story of Abraham believing the promises of God is truly a dramatic picture. And we see that in Genesis 15, especially verses 5 and 6. 
which says quite clearly, Abram, as he had been, Abram believed the Lord and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. But the story of his circumcision is two chapters and 14 years later from Genesis 17.9 and ongoing. And so, of course, he was counted righteous long before he went through the ritual. His righteousness, his being accepted by God, did not depend on a ritual. It depended upon his faith and his faith alone. And indeed, I would go further and say, his faith was not something that he naturally possessed. It was not something praiseworthy about him. It is something that God had already given to him as an unmerited gracious gift. And so God did not count Abraham righteous because of his circumcision or because of any ritual, any ceremony, any ordinance or good work. He didn't count him righteous because of any good deed, because of a religious life or a moral life. Now Abraham displayed those things, yes, but they were not the reason that God counted him righteous. God accepted Abraham and counted him righteous because one thing happened. Abraham believed God and his promises. That's it. Nothing else. Now Abraham would later receive circumcision as a sign or a symbol of God's promise. Now circumcision was not the road into God's presence. It was not what made Abraham acceptable to God. Circumcision did not confer righteousness on him. It only confirmed that he was righteous. It did not confer, it confirmed. Circumcision bore testimony that he was righteous. And so, of course, circumcision was a very important thing. I'm not trying to minimize the importance of it. It was the sign of righteousness, a sign of trust in God, the sign of belonging to the community of faith. Now note that circumcision is both a sign and a seal. When we think of what kind of sign it was, it was a sign of many things. It was a sign of celebration. It was a picture of the joy that the believer experienced in being counted righteous by God. It was also a sign of witness. The believer was testifying that he now believed and trusted God. It was the sign of a changed life and a separated life. The believer was proclaiming that he was going to live for God, to live a righteous and pure life that was wholly dedicated to God. It was a sign of identification. The believer was declaring that he was now joining and becoming one of God's people. And, looking back, we can say now that it was a sign pointing to Christ's baptism. Circumcision was also a seal that stamped God's justification upon Abraham's mind. Abraham had believed God, and God had counted his faith as righteousness. Circumcision was given as a seal or a stamp upon his body to remind him that God had counted him righteous 
through belief. Circumcision was a seal in that it it confirmed, it assured, it substantiated, it validated, authenticated, strengthened, verified, so many similar words, all pointing to the same thing. And it showed what God had done for Abraham. Now, remember, of course, that the Bible never says that any rites or rituals or ordinances or sacraments bestow anything upon anyone. They are signs of something that has already taken place. They are merely shadows and not the substance, as Paul will write in Colossians 2. Again, these are important things nonetheless. Rites and rituals, sacraments, are signs and seals of the Christian believer's faith. To neglect or reject a right given by God is to be disobedient. And to be disobedient is a clear sign that one was never sincere in the first place. In other words, if you have come to faith, if it is a true faith, you will never say, I never need to be baptized. I never need to be a part of the church. I never need to change anything in my life. All of these things that are being talked about in these passages are necessary reflections of a true faith in God. And so we know that Abraham was not immediately circumcised because God did not give that sign initially to him after he came to faith. But Abraham was immediately circumcised after God established circumcision as the sign of righteousness by faith. In other words, as soon as Abraham had that information, he did it. And it seems very fair to say that if the circumcision had existed when God, when Abraham first believed God, then he would have been circumcised immediately. He wouldn't have waited all those years. But it wasn't to be done when he first came to faith. Now, how do we know that Abraham would have believed God earlier? Simply because Abraham truly believed God from the beginning. And when a man believes God, when anyone believes God, he immediately begins to do what God says. And I have a couple of thoughts about that. One thought is that circumcision and other rituals are a matter of the heart. They really are. And they are not a matter of being spiritually cleansed by physical and material substances. I've already quoted, obviously, from Paul's writing in Romans... But I would like to quote to you from Deuteronomy, going all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10.16 says, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. And Deuteronomy 36 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and live. And finally, as Paul writes in the letter of the Colossians, to the Colossians, 
In him, Christ, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision, the operation, the cutting away done by Christ. And so the role of ritual and sacrament is so well explained. And another thought, though, is a thought about baptism and what it means for New Testament believers. If you are a person who has not yet been baptized, but you come to faith, you come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, then you are to be baptized immediately. Not because water baptism saves you, but because you are responding in joyful obedience to what God has done for you. Baptism should be the first step of obedience in the believer's new life in Christ. And as Presbyterians, we also see this in a, in a household way, in the sense that the leaders of the household, the mother and the father, in their obedience to God, they will also have their children baptized. And most of the people, I think, sitting in our church were baptized by, as, as children, as infants. Not everybody, but many of us were. And whether we were baptized as infants or as believers, that baptism symbolizes our first steps of faith. Jesus gave an indication of the urgency of being baptized when he said in Matthew 3.15, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. The Apostle Peter would later say, as recounted in Acts, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And finally, in a wonderful kind of cosmic way of describing it, Paul writes in Colossians, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Buried with him in baptism. And this leads us into a transition now between ritual and salvation through ritual and salvation through works. And of course, salvation by faith, the correct way of attaining salvation. In verses 11 and 12, we get into that transition now, Abraham was chosen by God for a twofold purpose. Before looking at that purpose, we should note that Abraham was said to have a unique relationship to the world. He is seen not as a mere private individual, but as a public man. He is a representative man of the human race, a pivotal figure in human history. In other words, when we hear of people having an individual relationship with God through Christ, and we hear about individuals being saved, it's never just individuals. 
there is an impact upon others. And we see that most clearly in the example of Abraham. Abraham would be seen as the father of all who believe God. Abraham is the head of the household of faith. And God chose Abraham, therefore, for two specific purposes. Abraham first was chosen that he might be the father of all believers, regardless of ritual and ordinance. I've been going on and on tonight about ritual and ordinance. Abraham is going to be the father of all who have faith, regardless of ritual and ordinance. Abraham was chosen by God to be the father of faith to all. All the ungodly and the heathen of the world who who repent and believe Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. That is the condition. All who repent and believe Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. And so no matter how uncircumcised or unbaptized, no matter how irreligious, how immoral, how unclean a person is, he has a father in the faith. A father to follow. Abraham is, well, we say he's the father, he is the pattern, he is the, the, the example, he is the picture, the standard. All of these things he is. He is the exemplar of faith to all of the lost people in this world. And so, a person does not have to begin to go to church before God will save him. A person does not have to get religious before God will save him. A person does not have to be baptized or go through any ritual at all before God will save him. And before God will forgive his sins. I guess I got that backwards. God will forgive his sins and save him. What he has to do is to believe God and believe the promises of God. When he bows in humble faith and believes, two things happen. Immediately, God accounts his faith as righteousness. You know, in in science, there are these attempts, and they're always trying to find what is the shortest possible length of time. I mean, when you're growing up, you might think a second is the shortest length of time. And as you grow older and learn more, you know that isn't the case. And I think there are scientists who are trying to keep, they keep breaking it down, trying to figure out what is the shortest possible second. Maybe it's a nanosecond. Uh, forgive my ignorance. I don't know. I mean, I may be talking about stuff that they thought about decades ago. Well, whatever that shortest period of time is, it may not have even been discovered. That is the time in which God will count a person's faith as righteousness. It doesn't take a second or a tenth of a second. It is instantaneous. And immediately then, the believer will arise and will be baptized and will begin to keep all the commandments and rituals and ordinances of God. That is the response. Jesus himself said it so well when he said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And to repeat what Paul had already said in chapter 3, 
For all who have, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, you don't have to have your act together to be saved by God. If anything, perhaps it's better if you don't. And you know that you don't, because then you know you need to be saved. Abraham was also chosen that he might be the father of the circumcised, of the religious, who follow in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. In other words, I've just said, well, you don't have to be circumcised first, but if you are part of the church, if you have gone through the rituals, Abraham is still your father. Now, being circumcised or being baptized or being in the church are not the things that save, but nonetheless, if you are in them, Abraham is still your father of faith. And the fact that he is your father of faith is what justifies you. I have heard people say, with some pride, that they are fourth or fifth or sixth generation Presbyterians, and that they are fourth or fifth or sixth generation Presbyterian elders in their families. You know, like it's some kind of royal title that's been handed down over and over again. That doesn't matter at all in the eyes of God. It's worthless in the eyes of God to be an elder when it comes to salvation. We need to remember that as Presbyterians. It is worthless because it is only faith that justifies us. The person, the religionist, cannot earn merit or work his way into God's presence and righteousness. He can only trust God for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That alone is what will save. Indeed, as Paul again said in Romans 3, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law... We become conscious of sin. And that, of course, leads us to repentance and salvation. Paul will write later in Romans, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And I think I'll close by giving some well-known words from Paul from his letter to the Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Indeed, none of us can boast. But we can rejoice that we have been saved, just like Abraham was saved, by grace through faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.